0: Two hundred years ago, two ambitious missionaries from the United States, Pliny Fisk and Levy Parsons, sailed from New England to the Ottoman Empire, beginning a long series of endeavors that spanned several generations and profoundly shaped the Middle East. American missionaries would go on to establish hundreds of educational institutions, hospitals, newspapers and presses, churches and orphanages, and other institutions. Indeed. Even in the 21st century, the complicated legacy of missionaries lives on in many ways. For a long time, scholarship on missionaries tended to be limited to those who praised missionaries for supposedly enlightening ignorant masses and those who criticized missionaries for furthering American imperial interests and imposing their views uh, of religion and society on a resistant public. However, in the past decade or so, several scholars have complicated this binary image through authors such as Usama Mattisi, Heather Sharkey, Marwa shakri Ellen Fleischman, Betty Anderson, Deanna Womack, Christine Lindener, Susanna Ferguson, and many, many others uh, who have shed light on the internal dynamics of missionary spaces, we now understand that missionaries and local populations shaped each other, and that missionary encounters were often co-productive and complex. Our guest today steps into this rich literature offering a story from the less common vantage point of the Ottoman Empire's sultans, ministers, and bureaucrats. Hello, and welcome back to The New Books in Middle East Studies, a podcast channel of The New Books Network. I'm your host, Joshua Donovan, and joining me today is Emrah Shaheen. Dr. Shaheen earned his PhD from McGill University in Canada, and is now the director of the Turkish Studies Program at the University of Florida, and a lecturer at their Center for European Studies. Today we'll be talking about Dr. Shaheen's new book, Faithful Encounters, Authorities and American Missionaries in the Ottoman Empire, which was published last year in 2018 by McGill Queens University Press. Thank you so much for being on the podcast with us today, Dr. Shaheen. Uh, Thanks for having me. So uh, we like to start these these interviews by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to study American missionaries in the Ottoman Empire.
1: Sure. It will be my pleasure. Um, so raised and educated in diverse cities in Turkey and Canada, I have always been fascinated by the ways in which, uh, you know, ethnically, politically, and culturally different people have interacted on a daily basis. And when I started to uh, talk about and think about the ways in which religious groups uh, start to interact, I even become more interested in learning about uh, the missionaries who came to the Middle East and interacted with people with different types of reasons. And... And then I started to think particularly about the ways in which they were received by the host society. Uh, I was born in Alanya, which is a a little uh, touristy place in southern uh, Turkey. Uh, Those who know, it looks like a touristy city uh, that you would come across, like in my state here in Florida, like in Miami. You go there, you will see many different people Uh, having that kind of an interaction on a daily basis. And when you look deeper, you will realize that their interactions are pretty much dominated by the way they identify themselves on cultural and political terms. Um, So in my academic work, I really wanted to understand uh, how Muslims, uh, the tradition that I come from originally, responded to a host of missionaries uh, coming from uh, the West. Uh, American missionaries, which is the core of the book uh, that we are talking about today, is only kind of a second comer to the Middle East. Before then, you would see European missionaries uh, coming and operating in different cities across the board. However, when you look at American missionaries, there is... uh, a number of reasons why they stood out amongst uh, their uh, their counterparts. To begin, uh, they were late comers. Uh, so the Ottoman authorities, which is also the second part, second core of the book uh, that we're talking about, uh, they really did had some kind of a neutral position when they interacted uh, and, you know, observed these missionaries coming uh, to the Ottoman realm. Uh, for the listeners uh, who do not know much about the Ottoman world, we are basically talking about the last empire uh, in world history stretching from Eastern Europe uh, to the Middle East. Uh, in my way of putting it, I really want to define it as a Mediterranean uh, kind of a, an entity um, that uh, includes a number of elements, entities, entities. Uh, from, from Europe, uh, from Turkic tradition, and also from the Islamic tradition. It is a very vibrant uh, kind of an empire, and this happened in the 19th century, which is actually kind of a period when you would see a lot of problems uh, in this uh, complex region. Um, so the Ottoman uh, authorities uh, have been uh, presented in the literature that you cited, uh, when you look at uh, the works by Usama Makdisi, uh, Michael Oren, uh, Sharkey, and Mehmet Ali Dogan, and the, the, the whole uh, existing literature uh, makes references to the Ottoman authorities. But um, starting with my interest in this topic of Muslim Christian relations. Uh, I started to realize that there is a huge gap between the way in which Muslim scholars, uh, scholars who come from that part of the world, uh, have uh, have produced some kind of ideas uh, that are radically uh, in contrast uh, with the ideas produced by the scholars in the West. Mm. Uh, The problem there is that they have taken kind of a defensive approach to this topic saying that, look, these American missionaries had some ulterior motives uh, with the way in which they came and operated in the Middle East. Uh, they were uh, imper- uh, they were the agents of a kind of an imperial uh, political system. And uh, essentially, they are anti-missionary, anti-American. And quite uh, interestingly, this scholarship emerged in the context of the Cold War when uh, American influence in the region and pretty much in the larger world uh, was being questioned by these scholars, not coming from the American uh, academia. Uh, On the other hand, Western scholarship, even though you see references to the Ottoman authorities, uh, in a deeper and broader view of history, uh, when you're reading their books, you will realize that these references are pretty fast and somewhat shallow. Uh, they and they in in specific contexts. For instance, when you look at a book about American missionary activities in Bulgaria, which is in southern Europe, you will realize that there is this fascinating work about American missionaries placing it in the context of gender relations: uh, male missionaries and female missionaries. Uh, the name of the book is "Domestic Frontiers." I don't want to promote other books when talking about my books, but it's such a great book. I recommend to uh, uh, our listeners. Uh, However, even in that amazing book, you will realize that the Ottoman authorities are silenced out. Um, And that is really what this book does uh, by making a service to our larger community of scholars and uh, students and also general readers interested in the subject, uh, which you know, uh, essentially is about how Muslims uh, identify themselves in relation to the wider world. And and uh, with that kind of an identity, uh, what are the ways in which they responded uh, to, uh, to foreigners? And in this case, uh, Christian missionaries. Let me tell you a little bit about why uh, American missionaries in particular matter. Um, it speaks to
0: I was curious. I was curious about that, because um, just to to frame a slightly more specific question about this, um, when you're so you're dealing primarily with Ottoman sources, um, which which as you as you've started to allude to, can can really give you a different perspective on things. Um, But using Ottoman sources, you could also do sort of a, a comparative approach, right, where you also... We talk about the French and we talk about the British and the Germans and Russians. Surely those would have been present. Um, so why, why did you just focus on American missionaries um, and are they sort of exceptional or, or typical?
1: Um I wouldn't well in many uh, the answer to your last question would be yes and no they are the same in the way that they have that kind of a religious uh objective of coming and serving in this region but at the same time essentially they are different in the way that uh they view uh the Ottoman world the Middle East uh and the way they interacted uh with the Ottoman empire the larger relations Uh, in and of itself is uh, very complex because the Ottoman authorities around this time had kind of a positive relationship with the U.S. government. Um, And what happens there is uh, I also discuss about these uh, uh, issues that are parallel to uh, the topic of Muslim-Christian relations, which is that the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman government in Istanbul, uh, having this... Uh, uh relations that have been uh, severed with uh with European powers turned uh to the uh, United States as an alternative like a third power uh, that is uh geopolitically uh, distant uh that have not had any manifest interest in colonizing or exhausting or tapping into Ottoman uh, resources so It is unique in that sense as well, uh, because the Ottoman government, the Muslim authorities, always had to, um, you know, they thought that they would have maintained kind of a good relationship with the US government uh, so that they could have kind of an ally against the encroaching European powers. This makes it very complex as well. In, in another thing which is really, really important, I, I believe, and which actually caused me to uh, solely focus on American missionaries, and that is basically the breadth and the um, and the intensity of American missionary investment in the region. Um, I'm talking about the figures in the book a little bit, but I really believe, let me give you some examples of these figures, uh, but I really believe that the real story is in the quality of these, uh, these narratives and relations uh, rather than the quantity of it. Uh, let me give you an example from the figures coming from 1909, which is really, really an interesting period uh, in, in the history of the Middle East. That was the time when you see there's a lot of political debates and tensions in the Ottoman capital of Istanbul. Uh, There is uh, local tensions across the board, particularly in eastern provinces of the empire. Uh, You would see uh, also British and French uh, um, political uh, involvement with this uh, difficult time for the Ottoman government. Around this time then, like in the early 20th century, you will see that uh, there's over 150 American missionaries operating across the Ottoman Empire. And we're not only talking about like uh, 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 specific locations all across the board, uh, you will see uh, that they are operating with natives uh, that are more than uh, 65,000. I mean, these are like huge, uh, impressive numbers. They, are, they, they, they operate... Uh, over 50 schools uh, and about 150 hospitals and churches. Here is an interesting uh, element that will that that you will see in American records, which is they have been collecting local donations for these services. The idea being that we are here only for uh, for a temporary period of time. As soon as the locals are good Christians. Uh, as soon as they are modern, and we will we will just go back. So we will just spread the word, and then and then retreat. So that was the original idea of the whole movement that we call uh, evangelical Protestant missionaries uh, in the region. In um, in contrast, um, uh, these numbers uh, are the largest uh, missionary investment all over the world. The second. Uh, to this Ottoman investment is only the missions to China, to imperial China. Um, so I, these, these numbers are really, really interesting. But uh, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of like, uh, I'm encouraged by these numbers uh, to focus on the Ottoman authorities rather than going into specific locations and see how these interactions happen, which is also part of the book. But at the same time, uh, when you look at this whole contact and conflict uh, in the larger Middle East, you will see that all these cases are uh, end up in Istanbul, in the Ottoman, uh, in the Ottoman uh, headquarters, and they somehow have to respond to these questions and to these uh, local cases, and they really wanted to uh, uh, resolve these matters. But uh, the way in which they wanted to uh, resolve these matters had a lot to do with their larger uh, rhetoric of. Uh, Government, governance, public order—you um, know—and and and, uh, and local local systems. Uh, so this is why I um, I really wanted to focus on American missionaries, basically because it is very rich, uh, and it also connects really well. Uh, f- to begin, it collapses political and social histories of the region into this one single topic that I call "faithful encounters." And second, uh, they provide the thick uh, descriptions about how the Ottoman uh, how the Ottoman uh, uh, past uh, uh, was unfolding in context. No matter what you want to talk, what you want to study uh, regarding the region, I strongly recommend uh, looking into uh, American missionary sources because they are really, really rich, and they. Always provide this opportunity uh, to kind of like balance out what you see in other records.
0: I agree with you there. Um, American missionary sources are they make for just fascinating reading, really and truly. Um, and one of the things that I I enjoy being reminded of as someone who primarily works on the Levant and works with Arabic sources um is is that there is a, a much wider empire here right and so you pull a lot of really fascinating anecdotes uh not just from what we would consider you know the arab east or the mashreq more properly uh but from anatolia right modern turkey and and southeastern europe um which uh which is is just a, an important thing i th- i think to bear in mind um so i, I want to turn now um to to the book itself and you you alluded to having to deal with uh with local cases. Um uh, and this is something that I've seen in in some of my own work but a, a lot of the complaints about missionaries were radiating from the locals to the center, right? Especially local governors and religious authorities uh having a problem with with missionaries for a variety of reasons. Uh, so how did the Ottoman Empire respond to these complaints? Some of them, it seems, were taken seriously. Um, others were not.
1: Uh, let me begin by saying that based on my reading of a wide range of sources in the Ottoman archives, as well as in the missionary uh, collections, uh, what I realize is that the sources are so varied that you can basically uh, make any argument against or for the Ottoman government when uh, they produced uh, particular policies in dealing with the American missionaries. This is really, really interesting. And this is actually what I had to grapple with uh, when uh, writing this book for general readers. The problem there uh, that I confronted was that when I deal with these specific cases, I realized that uh, the Ottoman government was... Um, um, interestingly and intriguingly uh, flexible in terms of dealing with these local cases. Let me give you an example. So uh, there's a local uh, mob who burned uh, a missionary uh, college somewhere in central Anatolia. And, um, you know, the local uh, agents tried to resolve the case, but they had to take a response from the central government. They forward this case to Istanbul, to the, uh, to the imperial government, and the imperial government usually, typically, you know, we're, we're, um, just uh, on, the, on the side note, we're dealing with a large government here. Uh, there is a constant streaming of these local cases ending up in Istanbul. They had to deal with a, a lot of these cases. They had to do this rapidly, but at the same time, they typically respond by first saying, "Well, uh, you know, let let us let us examine this case. Uh, meanwhile, try to um, you know try to." Um, Uh, you know, uh, calm down the parties that are involved in uh, these specific cases. And then it usually takes a lot of time. And meanwhile, the Ottoman government tries to come up with a response uh, and, you know, with a way to uh, resolving this case. But at the same time, you know, they really uh, uh, make extensive discussions in Istanbul what are the ways in which we, we, we should respond to this uh, kind of case? In some cases, you will see, for instance, that uh, there's international agents that are involved, like U.S. diplomats, like European parties, an international commission in this case that I talked about, uh, kind of like uh, willing to come and investigate the case. Uh, the Ottoman uh, authorities, in some uh, cases, allow uh, that kind of a, uh, an interference uh, in local affairs but in most cases they really uh, frame uh, local cases as part of this internal uh, local affairs so they don't want any foreign involvement or interference uh, in these cases so uh, the you know the point the bottom line there is that uh, these cases that you will see in other books uh, are right as well I mean they provide us with a good, Uh, and uh, decent uh, portrayal of the Muslim authorities and the ways in which they responded to this uh, missionary problem. Uh, But at the same time, they do not amount to uh, understanding the rhetoric and the larger political mindset uh, that was at work uh, in the imperial government. Because when you combine them, when you put them together, you realize that um, it is pretty much kind of uh, the Ottoman uh, policies uh, were uh, related to uh, some other political considerations and at the same time they changed over time. Depending on the context, depending on the larger relations between the Ottoman government and the American government and also other uh, uh, parties like the European powers, um, it it also depends on the location. Um, so in Uh, in a place where you would see massacres happening, for instance, uh, you would assume that uh, the Ottoman government would possibly uh, try to, um, well, let me not get into that minefield uh, for now, but uh, essentially it is very uh, complex. I was really struck by that. And these local cases inspired in me as a scholar the idea that I am looking at a... Uh, government uh, that is operating on an extremely complex uh, uh, uh set of ideas um, and uh, this story you know uh relates to not only uh, religious um, and political relations of the uh Muslim world with the uh, with the with the wider world but also it, it uh, potentially gives us a lot of insights into the internal dynamics of a Muslim political ident- uh, entity, and as a matter of fact, I really believe that, and I really try to convey this message throughout the book that the cases are um, not only mind-boggling, but also uh, they they uh, if we listen to these cases carefully. Uh, that re- that they they really uh, give us a window of opportunity to understand many complex issues uh, that we see in the larger middle east today
0: so with with that in mind um, we, we've talked a, a bit about differences with location, but one of the things you also talk about um, and you you referred to briefly in in your answer is that it kind of depends on on the time that you're talking about as well, right? So you you mentioned that somewhere around the 1880s or 1890s, um, there's a, a change that happens. Perhaps unevenly, but but still, nonetheless, uh, a change that uh, applies across the Ottoman Empire from limited tolerance of Ottoman, of American missionaries to a desire to contain them. Um, and I, I was a little perplexed by by this particular time, right? Because it's it's after the Tanzimat reforms; it's after Abd al-Hamid had been in power for for some time. So, what was it about the eighteen eighties and eighteen nineties that uh, that provoked uh, a, a change in in perspectives with within the Ottoman central state
1: um sure i mean this is really kind of like uh that that stands at the intersection of the broader uh topic of 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 the book which is american ottoman encounters um uh, and i'm not i'm not the first uh scholar who talks about this uh, uh, set of sea changes that happened uh, in the Ottoman Muslim uh, governance. Um, and as you alluded to, there's this Tanzimat uh, background to this, and I really think that uh, that also helps us to understand and put it into context uh, the Ottoman responses to American uh, missionaries. Uh, when you look at the Tanzimat reforms, uh, in theory, uh, this th- – you know, the series of reforms promise kind of a uh um uh freedoms and 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 equality uh to the Ottoman citizens or subjects across the board. Um and there is a whole discussion about whether this happened uh because European powers um dictated the terms of such a uh such a political change or whether uh there were some internal dynamics uh that caused uh, the the Muslim authorities in Istanbul to make that kind of a change. I mean, that's that's open to deba- debate. But around this time, uh, what is not debatable is that the Ottoman government in Istanbul started to understand that uh, its control, its local control, is weakening, and this is actually a uh, a key problem uh, for the Ottoman government to restore its power uh, across uh, the empire. And this is what I call in the book as kind of like this centralizing uh, momentum uh, that radiated from the imperial center to the provinces. But at the same time, as far as the missionaries and local communities were concerned, uh, you realize that uh, the Ottoman government really did not want to step in and make kind of like a uh, like a solid uh, uh, statement against the missionaries. Um, this is the early period uh, prior to eight uh, prior to the 1880s. You realize that there's all kind of local tensions and local complaints uh, incoming uh, to Istanbul, forcing uh, and. And, and encouraging the central government, these authorities in Istanbul, to do something about this problem that we call the missionary problem. But what is interesting around this early period is, is that, generally speaking, the Ottoman government abstained from giving a permanent uh, edict, a permanent uh, uh, legal pretext uh, to uh to punish the missionaries so the nuance there is that the ottoman government really wanted to deal with the missionary problem on a case by case basis this is really really interesting because uh both in terms of like their numbers in terms of like the volume of their uh their their uh activities and in terms of the level of interactions between the missionaries and the locals, the Ottoman government or these authorities um, uh, in Istanbul did not have a particular concern about the missionaries. Um, but what happens in the ni- in the 1880s is kind of uh, in terms of the uh, the missionary problem is that uh, the Ottoman government is kind of coupling its centralizing mission with kind of a uh, missionary intelligence that started to set in motion uh, in the 1880s. This is a, a, a difficult time as far as the region was concerned. Uh, we are seeing all these local tensions and the missionaries were actually right in the middle of, of the action and um, you see for instance, you know I'm citing like a whole range of Ottoman, uh, documents that that were produced around this time, but I think one uh, seminal piece was a census that was ordered by the Ottoman government uh, in 1883. Uh, usually, you know, the Ottoman uh, government uh, carries out uh, these censuses for various purposes. They, you know, for for taxation uh, purposes, for recruitment protocol, you need to know uh, who is living where. And how much they are making, uh, you know, the household is kind of uh, in the in the radar of the government. But but with this census, the Ottoman government, for the first time, as far as I can I can trace, is asking about foreigners uh, to be counted uh, in local uh, in local uh, areas. And the target there, I kind of like propose in the book. Uh, is is the missionary problem. They really wanted to know uh, where the missionaries were going, uh, how many missionaries were operating in particular places uh, in these in these provinces far away from Istanbul. It is a, a it's an amazing effort by the imperial government to get a hold of these missionaries. So uh, and this is only kind of like a, this signifies the larger efforts of the Ottoman Government Basically, to come up uh, with a solid, systematic uh, dealing uh, with the uh, with the missionaries. So after that, you also see in rhetoric and practice a range of new uh, vigilant practices uh, radiating from Istanbul. To begin with, for instance, I'm. Uh, this is really really striking uh, to see uh, that uh, the the earlier um, uh, tactic. Of dealing with the missionaries on a on a case by case basis transformed uh, into a prim- uh, what I call uh, to the uh, premier tier. So now uh, the missionary problem is as important as uh, any other public uh, public problem. For instance, it is uh, it alarms the Ottoman government as much as a local protest does. This is really, really striking uh, as far as, you know, the, the dynamics of the empire is concerned. So now then, uh, starting in the 1880s, uh, the Ottoman government is becoming more and more vigilant about the missionary presence uh, in the region. And also another interesting thing that, that also uh, embodies this kind of like a, uh, like a, like a state of emer- emergency. Um, is is that the public security, the Ministry of Public Security, uh, which is not a very powerful kind of an Ottoman agency earlier, uh, gained uh, enormous resources and importance in Istanbul. They are running all these local operations um, and around the time when you see the Ottoman uh, financial situation is not very promising. there is all these, Uh, These investments in this ministry basically seeing that uh, a kind of a a beacon of hope uh, uh, in some way uh, to to resolve uh, the missionary problem across the board. This is really, really interesting because now you see that the Muslim authorities in Istanbul are seeing the missionary problem as a public security problem. I haven't seen that in the existing literature, but I think this is kind of like this helps the Ottoman government to cast a long shadow uh, across the board. And I think this is really, really important. And this is actually kind of like speaking to your earlier questions. This is actually, uh, I wouldn't get it by comparing American missionaries to other missionaries who came before them. Or or if I just focus on one uh, single location like Beirut or Izmir uh, or Kayseri. Uh that's only kind of like a glimpse that you would get by studying uh, localized cases uh, on an isolated on, on an isolated project. But really, what is interesting is what is going on in Istanbul. Uh, all these local uh, happenings across the board. Are also are reflecting and shaping the views in Istanbul, and this is really what uh, I see missing in the literature, and I'm hoping uh, to contribute uh, to the literature. You know, in the I,
0: I was really struck by by the Ottoman logic that you're talking about here, um, particularly as it pertains to Christian-Muslim relations and the the broader historiography of the Ottoman Empire in the 19th century, because. I think people tend to look at the rule of Abdul Hamid II uh who came to power in 1876 um through the lens of of uh islamization right and so there's this sense that everything that came before him was about um you know modernization and order and then he sort of stepped in and and cared very much about uh, enforcing his his version of of Islam, but uh, you you write um, on on page seventy four, just to to bring it out for our listeners here, uh, that uh, and I'm quoting: evidence has yet to be found of a violent Muslim entity that denied the evangelical Christian enterprise simply on scriptural grounds indeed the leitmotif of the ottoman governance was bureaucratic calculation not jihadic zeal uh, the mufti's agenda was secular and pragmatic being less dependent on classical uh, islamic canons and i think that speaks to uh, to what you were saying that there were um, i mean it's not to say that islam wasn't uh, a factor at all but the the ottoman state had a uh, pretty pretty universal concerns that states have about public security and, and things that, uh, as you illustrate, really come into play in, in their decisions uh, with how to treat American missionaries. Um, one of the other things that you talk about, and you expand on this in chapter three, so I, I want to uh, turn there uh, briefly, is that they also have to deal with what we would call today, foreign policy. Um, so you open chapter three with this, uh, really dramatic and fascinating, uh, case of an American missionary in, uh, I believe in, in the Balkans, right. In, in Macedonia.
1: Yes. The stone in, case, yeah, right. right. Ellen yeah, stone, stone mm-hmm.
0: uh, who was kidnapped by Macedonian bandits, uh, and, and it scandalized Americans back home. Um, mm-hmm. But so so this one you're dealing with complaints not emanating from local subjects as we've talked about, but here you've got complaints coming in from foreign diplomats. Uh, how did the Ottomans handle uh, these sorts of, of complaints?
1: Uh, they were shocked and they really were confused about the way in which to deal with that kind of an international uh, attention uh, to what was going on in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, let me uh, kind of like, I, I'm really fascinated about uh, your your reading of my book and your focus on these interesting uh, themes that I really wanted to highlight. So let me talk a little bit about those because uh, I think our listeners may want to know uh, my take on these issues to begin uh, it is really interesting uh that you mentioned uh the reign of abdulhamid ii uh, this is really an interesting uh, uh, uh period uh in the history of the uh of the middle east and uh, in the larger uh, Muslim world, because we are looking at a uh, practically the last uh, sultan and caliph uh, in the Muslim world, Abdul Hamid II uh, has been discussed by scholars as a as a sultan either like a red sultan who massacred uh, you know many of uh, his subjects, or as a sultan with a vision and great sultan. Um, uh, or like Ulu Sultan, uh, in um, you know in in Turkish or uh, you know in the region. Um, what I wanted, I mean, I take issue with this approach. Uh, generally speaking, uh, I believe that historians borrow this kind of a perspective from the political science, focusing on particular individuals uh, as a way to study the whole period. Um, I will I will give you a contemporary. Uh, example of that. When you look at, for instance, uh, the modern-day Turkey or uh, other countries in the region, uh, you can think of any countries like Syria, Egypt, and some other countries. uh, You realize that we really uh, try to understand a complex area of issues unfolding in these countries by way of personifying them uh, in a ruler or in one single agency. And this a fallacy i, w- I really want to call it like a like a fallacy because uh, it's a fallacy that really puts us into a trap of not acknowledging and appreciating the complexity of the uh of the political entities in these regions um, when you look at turkey for instance you will realize that political uh scientists and and historians or experts so called experts in turkish politics they all focus on Erdogan, right? The president of Turkey saying that, look, I mean, uh, he was a good person, uh, he was a good politician. And today you see he he switched, he changed a lot and now it's a dictatorship kind of thing. Uh, I don't buy that. I, I, I really have an issue with that kind of an understanding. So he, speaking of Abdul Hamid II, um, you know as a reader of the book you realize that I really pay an effort to I um, to um, uh, to liberate uh, the Ottoman government uh, from this yoke of Abdul Hamid ii he's the Sultan exactly I agree with that but this is a cadre, this is like a uh, like a huge uh, government uh, uh, uh you know, whose, whose uh, instructions were a result of the, of the work of many bureaucrats, many ministers, a lot of uh, low-profile uh, uh, staff members uh, in Istanbul and across the provinces. This is not a one-man show. And all these uh, cases, when you look uh, close enough, uh, the cases relating to American missionaries, you see that this is a collective effort. Uh, This is something I really wanted to emphasize throughout the book. And all these interesting narratives that I use in the books, I I hope uh, serve to that purpose of uh, liberating uh, the late Ottoman uh, historiography uh, from that obsession, uh, with, with Abdul Hamid II. On another note, it is really interesting, you mentioned about the America's first uh, modern hostage crisis called uh, the Stone Affairs. Uh, there's even a book about this topic, um, and I really believe that it is an interesting case uh, that uh, that helps us reconsider the Ottoman view of themselves and the larger world. There, again, we are talking about the public opinion uh outside of the Ottoman Empire, uh, the Ottoman uh, government, these authorities in Istanbul are um, uh, uh, very much interested in learning about how this event of hostage taking uh, has been depicted in American and European newspapers, uh, how the diplomats uh, how of the great powers uh, take from this, this issue, uh, that kind of thing. I mean, it is really, really interesting. And I, that's not uh, a coincidence that I called this chapter as crime and order. Uh, because this case, and in many other cases, you see that the Ottomans are really very active, proactively uh, involved in these cases, trying to save Ellen Stone, uh, trying to help with the case uh and yet these are not acknowledged in the scholarship even in the monograph about this case um this kidnapping case uh miss stone affairs uh you see that we are really silent both scholars and 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 the larger public they do not know uh how the ottoman uh how the muslim authorities responded to this case uh, basically because um let me not go down that road. I have some ideas about it, but it's more personal rather than uh, academic. So when you look at those cases um, that are related to public security uh, issues, uh, you realize that the Ottoman government uh, responds basically with uh, with two ways. One, uh, they really wanted to uh, resolve the case. And in particular, as far as American missionaries are concerned, as I briefly mentioned, the Ottoman authorities are very careful about not uh, upsetting uh, the U.S. Uh, authorities because uh, their only uh, financial um, uh, their their only profitable trade uh, is with the United States. Around this time, uh, there is a huge transatlantic network of trade between the Ottoman uh, merchants and American merchants. You will see a whole uh group of uh new england merchants ending up uh in ottoman ports uh loading and unloading very lucrative trade um and also uh this is uh, around the time when the ottoman sultan and 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 the ministers uh start to discuss about uh american weapons and uh with the idea that if we purchase these weapons we could better fight against the enemy Uh, So there is, again, that kind of a um, uh, political, military, and economic concerns that are integrated into these kinds of stories. Uh, There's an interesting uh, uh, idea that comes uh, out in that chapter, which is uh, the Ottoman authorities actually, I mean, uh, they really were more concerned about the safety of American missionaries than... The safety of their local subjects. Uh, it was like a sad discovery for me, uh, but you know I had to put it into 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 the book because that really uh, helps us understand the local tensions in the Ottoman Empire, um, and you know kind of like uh, uh, complicating our understanding of what was going on. Uh, particularly in eastern provinces of the Ottoman Empire around this time. For instance, you would see local massacres, um, um, you know, in the in the purview of the Ottoman government. But at the same time, the Ottoman government is very careful about uh, saving and relocating American missionaries to safer places when uh, such local tensions uh, end uh, end up uh, being. Uh, very dangerous uh, for them. So this is really, really interesting. So, you know, the idea is that American missionaries are turning into diplomatic agents uh, in these discussions between Ottoman authorities and American authorities. And I really believe uh, that uh, this argument of mine uh, also has particular relevance to contemporary relations between Turkey and the United States. I don't know if you're following the news or our, our listeners are following the news. There's this uh, a recent case of Andrew Bronson, uh, And uh, you know, if the readers uh, uh, take a good uh, reading of, of that chapter, I think uh, they will be fascinated by how relevant the case of an American missionary named uh, George Knapp uh, uh, relates to uh, the later case of Andrew Bronson, um, so that is also another interesting discovery in the book that the readers will enjoy uh, having an inkling of. Yeah.
0: Well, so so then you move on to talk about some of the restrictions, and they're you know the Ottomans are generally careful uh, to do these in part for the reasons the geopolitical considerations that you talked about. There are two major uh, kinds of of regulations that that you talk about. The first uh, would be regulations designed to contain missionary institutions in the Ottoman Empire, Um, you know, a series of regulations that would require missionaries to register. Um, And then, uh, of course, there's also literary and press censorship as well, Um, certainly a a very relevant topic uh, even today. Could you talk a bit about uh, what some of these regulations were and how they operated in in practice?
1: Uh, Sure, it will. Yeah. Um, So what happens is uh, that around this time uh, that the book is about, um, uh, you you start to see that the Ottoman authorities are really trying to contain uh, the expansion of American uh, missionary investment. Uh, In the region. Um, The numbers of schools, hospitals, orphanages, uh, uh, soup houses, uh, and seminaries are impressive. And they are really, really noticeable uh, uh, in the following of the 1880s. And the Ottomans kind of like the Ottoman government not only not only became more vigilant about these, but also became overly concerned. And in their mindset, uh, this uh, exponential uh, expansion of American missionaries had to be associated uh, with uh, local public disorder. So uh, their largest strategy was that we really had to deal with this problem uh, in uh, and they, they came up with two policies uh, regarding this problem. One is uh, that they wanted to open uh, uh, imperial schools uh, to compete with, uh, uh, with uh, American uh, schools. The second is that we shouldn't allow them uh, to open uh, new establishments uh, in the provinces. This is really subtle kind of a strategy of containment. What they do is that they say, if you want to renovate your buildings, it's fine. Just uh, send us uh, and um, uh, a letter of application. We will consider that and we will allow you to uh, to renovate your buildings. But you cannot uh, you cannot build or renovate uh, your Um, your school or your hospital by going beyond the original Mm -hmm. limits for which you have an imperial Mm -hmm. permit. This is really, really interesting because that uh, tells us that the authorities calculated that if you do not allow them to expand beyond their original uh, territory, then they will cease, they will shrink and cease. This is really, really interesting. But uh, there's some exceptions as well. um, and that is um, uh, in uh, in that chapter about institutional regulations. Uh, I talk about Robert College, the first ever U.S. college uh, uh, established uh, outside the United States, uh, um, uh, giving. Uh, American uh, bachelor's degree. So this is really an interesting school that you see happening right in the heart of the imperial capital. And the other one is uh, Syrian Protestant College uh, in, in right. Beirut. So these are exceptions and the Ottoman government uh, really allowed them to also go beyond their original premises. Uh, but uh, these are exceptions, as I said, uh, Robert College is an exception because uh, of the personal connections uh, between the missionaries running that college and the ministry uh, and the ministers working in the Ottoman government. Uh, and in in Beirut, uh, you see Syrian Protestant College as an exception as well because of that kind of a, a connection, personal connections mm-hmm. as well, and also. Uh, uh, In the case of the Protestant college in Syria, you also see that the Ottoman government is kind of like not uh, being um, very strong in terms of like uh, enforcing uh, uh, local agents uh, to crack down on the missionary establishments. Kind of like being more loose or lax. Uh, dealing with these establishments. So that is really, really interesting. And around this time, they also come up with a, with an additional uh, idea. The idea is that all these uh, American institutions like hospitals and colleges, uh, they are um, part of the local problems like these tensions. You see, for instance, that Muslims and, and local Christians are fighting and uh these Christian uh uh parties are also students in American missionary colleges, and how can you respond? How can you resolve an issue where uh you will also see these students studying uh in an American college? So there's a whole range of uh discussion about that, and the Ottoman authorities uh, finally uh, came up with this idea that well, we cannot deal with third parties um um like a particular missionary owning that school or um you know on a on a on an individual basis so uh, they wanted all these schools to register to re-register uh uh their operations with the American board which is basically American Board of uh, Commissioners for foreign missions uh the main uh, missionary agency that uh sent, uh, American Protestant missionaries to the region so they really wanted to have an agency that is supervising and overseeing all these uh all these uh missionary establishments uh, but it doesn't work as well um another failing uh strategy uh, a a a product of the uh, late imperial uh, uh governors um and, and it didn't work as well another interesting topic uh that uh, unfolds in the chapter on the on the publications um, is is the issue of uh, missionary propaganda. Uh, and this actually takes us back to uh, your introduction of the topic where you mentioned like uh, the uh, the term uh, ignorant masses. Yeah. Uh, this is kind of a topic that I really wanted to delve into in that chapter, uh, where the main topic is missionary literature, missionary publications uh, that are uh, uh, that are uh, disseminating uh, in the Ottoman uh, in the Ottoman world. This is an interesting topic uh, on many levels. One. Uh, is the way in which the Ottoman authorities classify these uh, this uh, this literature, and they begin by dividing it into two uh, types of publications. On the one hand, we have religious publications, the pamphlets, uh, the Bible, uh, and other religious uh, tracts. You can have like a hymn hymn book uh, being uh, sang in a in a college. Uh, these are all uh, religious. Uh, uh, publications. Uh, the other uh, class uh, type of publications uh, is educational books. This these this uh, type of literature has nothing to do with religion. Uh, they are basically uh, about uh, STEM fields um, and languages, like humanities and STEM fields, go into that category. So they make that kind of a distinction, a kind of a, a qualitative distinction. Uh, as far as the missionary publications are concerned. Here's the interesting thing. They, on top of this, consider that the Ottoman uh, understanding of its subjects are changing, right? In the late 19th century, uh, the Ottoman uh, authorities also start to see. This is really interesting. Just like the American missionaries, the Ottoman authorities in Istanbul, have that kind of an elite uh idea of them being informed and enlightened and any other people like subjects and these communities uh in the provinces being ignorant malleable masses um and so it is so when you couple these two uh ideas then you see that the ottoman government now is uh Trying to ban religious uh, literature uh, coming in uh, to uh, 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 local uh, communities, we are basically looking at these villages where people are ignorant. Uh, most of them are generally uh, illiterate. By the way, they don't know how to read and write. But when a Bible comes in, uh, you will see a missionary or a or a student. Um, uh, or a student, uh, you know, mm-hmm. reciting or or reading to the people, uh, to to his uh, uh, counterman, you know, in a coffee house or in a in a meeting. Uh, we are looking at a verbal or like an oral right. tradition here, um, and uh, so for the Ottomans, it really doesn't matter whether these ignorant masses could read or write. Uh, they really uh, drew a red line. Um, for the missionaries to uh, uh, to contact with the locals with their literature, urban uh, urban citizens, urban subjects, uh, is an exception. This is really really interesting as well. Um, the distinction is that they are uh, they are not susceptible to important ideologies like those uh, villagers or peasants right. in the countryside. So no matter what the missionaries are, um, uh, are delivering uh, to uh, our urban, uh, you know, uh, citizens, mm-hmm. it's fine because they will not convert. Uh, they are even kind of like anti-missionary, more anti-missionary uh, than themselves, like uh, mm-hmm. those people in Istanbul. So. That that chapter is really interesting. Also, there, I uh, in that chapter, let me let me uh, conclude on that chapter by saying that there is an interesting process of censorship that um, that uh, the American uh, missionary authors had to deal with. This is not only them; all authors, all publishers had to deal with that kind of a censorship. Uh, in the late 19th century, uh, Ottoman world, uh, it is a difficult time. You cannot go against, at a time when uh, it, is, uh, it is very difficult to express uh, your ideas. Uh, uh, American missionaries even mm-hmm. had to be more careful. Um, and so the Ottoman law required around this time and you see this as a law coming uh around this time in the 1880s in the late 80s uh that uh american uh editors had to send a copy to the uh a couple of copies uh to the imperial censors uh and and get their approval before uh, they published their work and in many ways there's a lot of revisions um and these censors are uh uh painstakingly uh scanning through uh these these publications trying to find these forbidden words there is a book where there's a list of forbidden words being indexed and updated by the ministry of education um so you cannot talk about uh these words you cannot mention them um so, I mean, it becomes really, really difficult for American missionaries to publish uh, their, their books, particularly uh, the first type of publications right. as I was talking about, like the religious or political uh, type. Um, so uh, it becomes really, really difficult. But again, um, you know, in a, it's, it's really tragic to see that uh, that strategy of containing institutions Right? Const- uh, con- containing the missionaries institutionally and literature-wise, right. I mean, they both failed. You see millions of pages of missionary uh, publications uh, swarming not only yeah. the urban centers, uh, but also the countryside. This is a tragic uh, uh, unfolding of events uh, from the perspective of the Ottoman government. But uh, again, uh, you know, they were operating uh, in circumstances uh, not always of their own choosing. They were making all these steps to resolve the matters in their own ways, uh, but uh, the context is larger than they could control.
0: You know, it, it is fascinating um, hearing you and, and having read you pull back the curtain a little bit um, because as... As many scholars of the region will will note, when it comes to uh policing space, either physical space or symbolic space or or censorship um in the Ottoman Empire, it 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 applied to Several, uh, several different polities. It, it you know it affected not just missionaries but all sorts of people. And so, even if uh, you know you're you're someone who is not yet convinced by our insistence that missionary sources are really interesting and that uh, the literature is really rich and and interesting on missionaries, um, even if you're just interested in in Ottoman uh, governance, this book I think really does a good job of showing, especially with the censorship, exactly how things worked, as you said, the, the list of words that were acceptable and not. And uh, so I, I just thought that that was really fascinating. I wanted to, to make a note of that. Um, so I, I wanna just close in, in a way that we, we always like to close by asking you uh, what sort of projects you're working on now and, and uh, what you plan to do uh, in the near future.
1: Um, I'm working on a number of projects uh, that um, that uh, this book has inspired in me. Uh, the larger project that I'm working on right now is basically the emergence of conservatism uh, in the post-Ottoman world, uh, uh, where you see predominantly Muslim Muslim authorities uh, have uh, uh, developed. In some uh, nuanced ways, uh, that is uh, one topic that I'm working on, uh, which is basically how, uh, after the uh, end of the Ottoman Empire, how these former Ottoman uh, provinces or or regions have reinvented uh, their identities in response to uh, their relationship with the Western world. Uh, I am not I'm not easy with using. Um, the term, the Western world, but I mean, this is really what, uh, they called it, uh, as a whole, uh, the, uh, they refer to the Western world, including the United States, uh, as a, as a center of civilization. So you will see all these pan-Islamist and conservative thinkers, uh, who, um, try to understand actually the end of the Ottoman empire. And the abolishment of the caliphate, so that is kind of a vacuum left by the Ottoman Empire, and I'm looking at a series of literature, uh, including uh, a journal named The True Path, uh, where uh, international or like global Islamist scholars contributed to, all the way from India to Egypt to uh, to Turkey. Scholars are publishing in this journal. Uh, in a way to negotiate uh, with their difficult uh, encounters uh, with the West. They are asking these uh, ever-present questions like, is Islam compatible with democracy? Why did the mighty uh, have fallen, right? I mean, that's the epilogue of this book. Uh, And um, anti-American... Uh, Anti-Western ideas. How are how is it that these ideas have been integrated into this Islamist uh, political discourse that emerged after the Ottoman Empire? So this is one topic related to that. I'm also looking at actually uh, Muslim missionaries or Muslim travelers who traveled across American, Canadian, and European uh, cities and world fairs that took place in those uh, in those. Uh, uh, places and 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 uh and returned to the muslim world with the intention to tell their readers about uh their trip uh to uh, to the west i mean these are really really interesting uh travel books uh that i am hoping to publish uh in a uh in a monograph um and so i'm basically looking around i'm basically re- uh, revolving my projects around uh, these ideas that I get from uh, from this book, the conflict is still something that I am interested in. Uh, so the larger question of the larger question that the authorities in Istanbul and these uh, these Islamist thinkers have been asking, like, will Islam fail against the West? Can we can we catch up uh, with uh uh what we have uh uh what we missed in the past uh, century uh when can we uh can we progress without uh, uh without losing our religious identity these are the type of questions that that i'm really really interested in so uh, my uh coming projects are dealing with those projects uh with uh, uh and Uh, It will be my pleasure to talk as soon as, you know, uh, a book comes out of these projects.
0: Absolutely. Just let us know. We'd be happy to have you back on. Um, But until then, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Shaheen, for coming on the the program and, and talking about your book with us.